invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20. Luke, chapter 20. We're going to uh, cover verses 1 through 18. And while you're turning there this morning, let's just suppose that it's uh, quiz time, okay? We've got a one-question pop quiz this morning. You don't need to shout out the answer. Uh, But here's the question. Um, With the gospel narratives in mind, what is it that most surprised people about Jesus? In other words, as people listened to Jesus speak and watched him act, what is it about the Lord Jesus that most took people by surprise? What do you think it would be? Some people might say it's love or compassion uh, or come up with something else. But I think, I think the right answer is the thing that most surprised people about Jesus was his authority. The authority of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4 verse 32 it says the people were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. This is what surprised people the most, the authority of Jesus. And we respond to his authority in one of two ways. We either welcome it or we question it. Uh, When Jesus told the paralytic, sons, your, your, your sins are forgiven, some of the scribes charged Jesus with blasphemy. They said, no one can forgive sins but God alone. Who is this man? How did Jesus respond? Well, he He didn't back down. He didn't say, you know what, guys, you're you're right. I I could be a little more careful in how I put it, and I need to to qualify, so I'll I'll make sure that I'm more careful with my speech next time. No, he he didn't back down at all. He said, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This whole encounter was a disagreement about authority. Jesus claimed divine authority to forgive sins. And this is what surprised people. And when you read through the Gospels, you see that some people welcomed it, and some people questioned it. And this is what we're going to think about together this morning. But before we read our passage, let's, let's briefly pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that he would come by his spirit and minister his word to us in power for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
as they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did, he, why did uh, you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out, uh, let it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, the Gospels <coughs> were written to show us that Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior that we all need. But actually, when you read through the gospel accounts, there's so much more that is said about the Lord Jesus that I think is captivating, admirable, and even wonderful. And all of the gospel stories are thrilling, but there are also, I think, certain accounts in Jesus' life and ministry that put you on the edge of your seat and if you are a follower of Jesus, leave you cheering for Jesus, wanting to give him a high five. That's one of these stories, I think. Here Jesus has an encounter with religious leaders who are determined to destroy him. Uh, he is, he's come to Jerusalem, and when he saw the great city of Jerusalem as he approached, he broke down in tears. He wept. He wept because he knew the people within the city would reject him and its religious leaders would find a way to crucify him. After entering the city, he, he went into the temple and he cleansed it. You remember turning over the tables, driving out the, the money changers, and now he's in the temple again. And isn't it interesting how Luke sets this up? This whole encounter is set within the context of Jesus teaching and preaching the gospel. And that is when he comes into conflict with these religious leaders. And let's just understand this. This is a fight. 
This is a fight. It's not a fist-to-fist physical fight, but it is a battle of the minds. These guys are looking for a way to entrap Jesus and eventually have him killed. But they are totally outmatched by Jesus. And I think Jesus, and that's because Jesus is the living and perfect demonstration of the principle that you cannot keep a good man down. So what's this fight about? Uh, and, and let's ask this question. This is what we should do anytime we're reading our Bibles. Why is this passage in the Bible? What's this passage in the gospel for? Well, the issue here is authority. And Luke has this story in his gospel because he wants you to understand that Jesus possesses legitimate authority. That's what this fight is about. And connected to his authority, as we work our way through this passage, I think that we are led to see Jesus' wisdom, his courage, and his divine identity as the Son of God. And so as we think about this big idea of the authority of Jesus connected to that this morning, I want us to think about the courage of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the courage of Jesus, and the divine identity of Jesus. So let's think first of all about the wisdom of Jesus. Now I, I like a good debate. I don't mind getting into discussion with someone where there are some differences of opinion, but there ain't no way I ever want to get into a debate with Jesus. <laughs> These guys should have known better. Uh, You know, this isn't the first time that these religious leaders, some of them at least, have had a run-in with Jesus before. And you'd think that they would know something about his reputation and his ability to handle himself in debates like this. I, I envision some members of the Sanhedrin standing off in the corner in the temple precinct somewhere, shaking their heads, saying, no, no, don't ask him a question. Especially one like that. But they do. And they were trying to catch Jesus in a trap. But here's the thing. Uh, Jesus not only springs the trap, he puts his questioners in the trap that they were setting up for him. And so these priests, scribes, and elders, verse 18, come to him. And those three groups made up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was uh, the ruling council. They were the ultimate authority underneath Rome. Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to exercise a great deal of authority. They had had some political authority. They had some civil authority. They were allowed to make some decisions on criminal cases, though they had to get permission from Rome for uh, crimes of capital punishment, which is why Pontius Pilate will come into the picture a little bit later this week. But they also had religious authority to interpret and apply So these are guys who had a lot of authority and these powerful men come to Jesus and ask him a question. But it's not a sincere question. It's it's an angry and skeptical question. So they say in verse 2, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, let's pause there for a second. What do they mean by these things? Maybe they're thinking about, uh, just in general, all of the things that Jesus has said and done 
throughout his public ministry. Or, or maybe they're thinking more recently about how Jesus has approached the city of Jerusalem as the Messiah depicted in the Old Testament. Or perhaps even more recently, they're directly referencing what Jesus has just done in the temple when he has come in acting like he owns the place, turning over tables, and driving out the money changers with a whip. I think that's um, what they're referring to when they say these things. And (laughs) we've got to recognize, at least on the face of it, the question that they're asking is fair. You know, Jesus, what you did was quite quite a stunt. It was pretty disruptive to the status quo, so we'd like to know what gives you the right to do that. If it was a sincere question, it would be a legitimate question, except except they've already made up their minds. They've already decided in their hearts, he has no right to do this. And so really the, the, the question is, they're asking him, tell us, Jesus, what gives you the right. You know, you're not a priest. You're not a trained rabbi. You certainly haven't received any kind of um, okay from our council. You're, you're just a teacher from the backwoods hick town up there in Galilee called Nazareth. So show us your credentials. Who do you think you are pulling off a stunt like that? And by what authority do you march into the temple, overturn tables, <coughs> drive out the money changers and and of all weeks during Passover week when all of the crowds are here what gives you the right so that's the question and really I think that's the tone of their question now look at how Jesus responds I think it's it's brilliant he responds to their question with a question and he knows what they're up to he sees right through it So he asks them a question, giving them two alternatives. Okay, John's baptism. Before I I answer your question, guys, I want to ask you a question of my own. John's baptism. Is it from heaven? Another way of asking, is it from God? Or is it from man? Now, the question presents them with these two options. And of of course, now they're in in a real pickle, (laughs) the Sanhedrin. Because they, they can't answer the question. They didn't like John, first of all. They didn't appreciate his message about penance. They didn't appreciate his condemnation of religious uh, hypocrisy, hypocrisy and the call to real, deep, true, lasting repentance. So no, they didn't think John the Baptist was from God. At least that's what they had convinced themselves of so they could resist his message. But they also can't say that out loud Because the people love John. John the Baptist has been widely received by many in the the community. So here they are in their their huddle. And you can imagine them saying, okay, guys, what are we going to do here? What are we going to say in in answer to Jesus' question? We we won't say he's from God because, well, we're pushing that reality down in our hearts and denying it. But we also can't say that... He's merely from man because that's going to get the people all riled up and we may very well be in physical danger if we say that. So after some conferencing together, they come back to Jesus and say, we don't know. We're not going to answer that question. So Jesus says, neither will I answer you. So let's just pause for a second here and learn some lessons from from Jesus for ourselves 
First of all, you know, Jesus had the wisdom to discern between a sincere and insincere question. And when somebody asked him a sincere question, he gave a sincere answer. But when someone puffed up with pride came and asked Jesus an insincere question, Jesus didn't hesitate to expose their pride to humble them. Now that's a, Jesus was a master at doing this, but dear friends, I think it's a wisdom that we can learn from him too. But here's something else we can learn as we're just reflecting upon the, the wisdom of Jesus and his dealing with the Sanhedrin. We can, we can learn to ask searching questions. I think sometimes when somebody asks us a skeptical question or hostile question, we, we immediately go into overdrive and think, okay, I've got I've to come up with a really profound answer that answers the question exhaustively, when in fact, no, you don't. No, you don't. Sometimes all you need to do is ask a question. There's a really good book by a guy named Randy Newman titled Questioning Evangelism. And the book is titled Questioning Evangelism not because it's questioning evangelism, but because he's trying to encourage us to incorporate the asking of questions in our uh, evangelistic encounters. So, for example, somebody may ask you or say to you something along these lines, you know what? I don't believe there's only one way to God. I think we all find our own way to the same thing that we call God. And you know, my, my first inclination is to say, okay, uh, seminary education on you, you know, dump it on them. But maybe, maybe we should just ask some questions. You know, um, where did you learn that? Uh, what's, what, what, could, you, could you tell me what the best argument is for holding that position? Have you, have, you, uh, have you visited the scriptures to see what they have to say about that idea? Asking questions. It's a great way of responding to hostile questions. So this is the first thing, though. The wisdom of Jesus. When he was pulled into debate... There was a wisdom that stood out. He was completely in control of himself and completely in control of every attempt to undermine him. So if you're working out who Jesus is, if you're just trying to get a handle on who, who is this one that Christians call the Lord Jesus Christ, can, can you at least recognize today that he is one with an astonishing wisdom. There's a lot more to say about Jesus, but certainly not less. <laughs> he always knew what to say. He always knew how to say it. He always knew when to say it. He always said what he meant, and he believed that people should listen. Jesus spoke with authority, and the crowds heard in him a distinct wisdom that lent itself to a unique authority. And here's the second thing I want us to think about this, this morning, is the courage of Jesus on display in this encounter. And you might think that's a strange thing to say. After all, he dodges the question that the Sanhedrin asks him. Where's the courage in that? Maybe you are also thinking, well, what about all the times throughout his, uh, his public ministry when he's done something for someone, he's, he's healed someone, he said, now don't, don't go back and tell everybody about who I am. Don't go around declaring to people that, that I'm the Christ. Keep it, 
keep it a secret. Where's the courage in that? Well, listen, here's the thing we need to understand. Courage does not mean that you say everything you could say at every moment you can say it. Let me say that again. Courage does not mean you say everything you could say at every moment you could say it. Yeah, Jesus has an opportunity here, and he's had plenty of them before. Jesus, by what authority? Okay, good question, guys. Let me tell you a few things. You know, Genesis 3.15, that, that promise about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head? That's me. Uh, the promised offspring of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations? I'm here. Uh, great David's greater son, that's me. I'm the king who's going to reign forever. Or the, the ones that the prophets look forward to and anticipated, all of that's fulfilled in my life and ministry. You see, I'm the Christ, the Son of God. That's why I have this authority. Jesus could have done that over and over again throughout his ministry, but people didn't have the ears to hear that. Although, although all of it is true, and Jesus could have said all of it, it wouldn't have helped him get the truth out to more people. He could have said it <coughs> right at the start of his ministry, at his baptism, when the Spirit descended upon him and the voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. He could have said, I am the Christ and I've arrived. But no doubt then people would have gone running to the authorities and he would have been dead in no time. His ministry would have been over. So you see, it takes wisdom, courage, and wisdom. You know, people sometimes think that you're, you're cowardly if you don't say everything that you know all of the time. And for sure, it can be motivated by cowardice, but, but not if there's a larger purpose in view. You see, again, just making an application for ourselves here. Sometimes when we share our faith with people, we feel like we have got to communicate an entire systematic theology or we failed. And sure, there might be a place for that on, on certain occasions, sharing a lot of biblical information. But there are certainly times when wisdom would have us leave people to connect the dots for themselves, leave them with questions about who is this Jesus? So Jesus' silence at times was not a sign of cowardice. It was his way of advancing his mission in his father's time. He wasn't ever afraid of confrontation, but he, he, had, he had the wisdom to know when to enter into it. And in his last week, you see, here we are in the last week, the time has come. And Jesus is going to start pressing people's buttons, not to annoy them, but to press the issue. He is prepared and ready now to make his identity known. Knowing full well what that will mean for him, knowing full well where that will lead him. So he approached the city of Jerusalem as the Messiah depicted in the Old Testament. Then he marches into the temple acting like he owns the place, which he does. And then he drives out the money changers in the temple, says the whole thing is going to be torn to the ground. And he has come into Jerusalem after predicting on three different occasions that he is going there to suffer, to be handed over, and to be killed. That, my friends, is courage. And there does come a time when Jesus will answer his opponents squarely. In Mark chapter 14, 
verse 60, as he's being interrogated, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now the time has come and Jesus says openly before his opponents, I am. Again, once knowing full well what the sentence would be, blasphemy. That's courage talking. You see, Jesus always knew exactly what he was doing, whether he said a lot or a little, whether he was speaking clearly or cryptically, about his identity. It was always determined by one thing. Will this help me accomplish the mission my father has given to me to seek and to save the lost? I think that's actually a great definition for us as Christians. Always speaking and acting wisely in obedience to our heavenly father. (coughs) See, Jesus' life was marked by that kind of of courage. His words and actions were were never determined by the opinions of of others. So a little bit later in Luke chapter 20, these religious leaders come to Jesus again, and this time they try flattery. They say to him, teacher, we, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God, right? You don't care what other people think. You're not swayed by others' opinions or appearances. That was Jesus' public reputation. And these religious leaders are trying to play on that. But nevertheless, that was true about Jesus. That was his reputation. And as those who follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friends, isn't that a reputation worth aspiring to? And not by being a jerk. Right? That's, that's the easy way to not care. That's the easy and lazy way to not care about other people's opinions. But to be as kind and loving and compassionate and gentle as Jesus and not be swayed by the opinions of others. Jesus had no fear of man. He had no fear of the crowds. He was always acting in perfect obedience to his father's plan. There, there was a There was a clarifying simplicity to his life. And just compare that for a moment. That courage of Jesus with the cowardice of the Sanhedrin. They knew what they thought. Except they were afraid of the people so they wouldn't say it. Luke 22 verse 2. The chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. For they feared the people. It's the very opposite of Jesus. It's kind of, like a, kind of like a bad politician. Now, not all politicians are like this. this is, you, you, you know the stereotype, though. A hard issue is brought up to them. And here are the members of the Sanhedrin. And they, they muster up all of their courage to, at the end of the day, say, no comment. It was really a way, though, of masking over their underlying unbelief and skepticism. And you see, here's the thing. This is how some people are today when it comes to the truth about Jesus. Like like these leaders, they embrace a skepticism that masquerades as honest intellectual inquiry. When in fact, it's just hardened unbelief. 
You see, there are some people who have hard questions, good questions. Some of you here today might have hard, good, sincere questions. And we ought to bend over backwards and do everything we can to provide robust biblical answers to those questions. But then there are many people who act like they have questions, but really they have no interest in getting real answers. And like Jesus, we need to learn to distinguish between the two. To the sincere questioner, we do everything we can to provide a sincere (coughs) answer. To the prideful skeptic, though, we need to learn to take a pin and pop the balloon of their pride. That's what Jesus is really doing here. And I think doing that takes courage. It takes wisdom to know how to speak, when to speak. And Jesus was uncompromisingly courageous as he lived in obedience to his father. So we've seen, uh, and, and I, hope, I hope along with me, all this week I just found myself marveling at the wisdom and courage of Jesus revealed in this passage, but now I I want us to get to the heart of the issue here, which is the authority Jesus has by virtue of his identity. Uh, His his question was not just a non-answer. He wasn't simply saying, okay, you guys are asking me a question I don't want to answer, so I'm going to ask you a question that you don't want to answer, and we'll wrap all this up. Jesus was actually giving an answer with his question, without stating it directly. So look at the question again in verse 4. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now think about what Jesus is doing. He's connecting the authority of John's ministry with his own. And he's saying, in other words, if you make up your mind about John and you get the answer correct, then you'll know everything you need to know about my authority. And where it comes from. Because if John was a prophet from God. Think this through. If John was a prophet from God. Who spoke for God. Speaking God's message. Then you know exactly. Where Jesus authority comes from. We met John the Baptist. Back in Luke chapter 3. And we, uh, we saw that he was the prophet. Who was sent by the Lord. To as Isaiah puts it. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So who was, who was John the Baptist getting people ready for? Uh, the Lord himself. And then when Jesus comes to the river Jordan while John is baptizing and, and John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, he looks at him and what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, I'm not even fit to untie the strap on his sandal because he is greater than I. And so John the Baptist identified Jesus as the promised Savior and one who was greater than him. And then you remember uh, Jesus' own baptism when he was baptized by John the Baptist and the heavens opened and the spirit descended in the form of a dove and a voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so you see, Jesus' question is not just a throwaway question designed to silence his opponents. There is an answer to the Sanhedrin's question and the right answer to Jesus' question. But an answer, it's an answer that these men would never 
confess. And that's the point Jesus is getting at. This isn't just a a matter of, uh, you guys don't have the right information and you need the facts. You need a little bit more evidence to understand who I am. The real issue here is their hearts. Their unbelief. Their refusal to recognize the, the ministry of John the Baptist because it convicted them. And therefore their refusal to recognize Jesus as the Lord himself come to save. And so Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy, their pride, and their unbelief. And also their cowardice as they're too scared to say what they actually think out loud because of their fear of the people. You see, it's a masterstroke from Jesus. If John is from God, you have your answer. My authority is from above. And it's an identity that he will make all the more clear, <coughs> excuse me, in the parable that he tells to the people in verses 9 through 18. It's hardly a parable because even his unbelieving audience knew exactly who he was referring to. The religious leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them. And in this parable, a man owned a vineyard, a common Old Testament picture for Israel, people of God. The owner hired uh, some tenants to take care of the vineyard and and to cultivate its its fruit. And after a time, the owner of the vineyard sent one of his servants to to go and gather some of uh, of the return. Uh, But the tenants, what did they do? They they rejected the servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant and then another servant and the same result both times. Now, what, if it were you, what would you do at this point? I, I, I would rally the troops and send them in to drive out these wicked tenants. But instead, the owner of the vineyard says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send my, own, my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Uh, but the tenants who were charged to take care of the vineyard despised the owner's son, and conspired together to put him to death, which they did. They took him outside the vineyard, and they killed him. And now, now the owner of the vineyard was going to come in judgment. And the people hear this parable, and they say, surely not. But take a look at what Jesus goes on to say. The one they killed would not actually be destroyed. The death of the son is actually the very means of accomplishing and establishing an indestructible work. So here Jesus is implying, again, he's not stating it explicitly at this point. He will do that later in the week. But he is implying that he's the Son of God sent to the Lord's vineyard to be rejected and become the chief cornerstone of God's true temple. So to the question, uh, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus gives a wise, courageous response, which hints at his divine identity. And it really is a daring move, because here is Jesus in the most authoritative place, in the most authoritative city, among the most authoritative body of religious leaders, and in that place he is asserting I have divine authority. Jesus spoke and acted as one with divine authority. 
Now, if Jesus has divine authority, then the question becomes for us, will we acknowledge it? We acknowledge it. Many, many of us will say, yeah, I like Jesus. King Jesus, yes, that's great. Jesus has authority. Praise God. I love it. But do you love it? Do you love it when that authority makes claims upon your life? Because it means that Jesus has claim to what you think, what you say, and what you do. It means you ought to, we ought to, listen and submit to his word. So dear friends, don't, don't think you can say, you know, I've, I've got Jesus, but I'm not really interested in submitting to, to the Bible. Or I've got Jesus and I've got my feelings. And when Jesus and my feelings come into conflict, my feelings trump what Jesus says. Because you can't take hold of a part of Jesus and leave the rest. You either embrace the whole Jesus or you don't embrace him at all. So the question as we think about the authority of Jesus here is, will we submit our lives to, to everything in here? Because it was Jesus himself who said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. To, to, the word there is plerao, to bring them to their fullest meaning. And so the Old Testament scriptures have living application for the people of God today. And it was Jesus who said that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to lead his apostles into all truth, to write these things down so that what the apostles wrote to the church is the living word of Christ to his people today. So in both Old and New Testaments, we have the living and active word of God. And, and that means that we are to submit to all of it, not just the parts that we like. You know, even if there are parts where we initially think, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, really, I don't really like that. Well, that means I'm going to have to change. Here's actually, I think, where the rub really is for a lot of people. That my feelings are wrong. And my feelings actually need to change. And be brought into conformity with what Jesus says about how I should think and feel. Will, will you recognize Jesus' authority over every part of your life, that part that touches on your sexuality, that part that touches on your relationships, that part that touches on your greed and self-centeredness, that part that touches upon your drunkenness or your fits of anger, that part that touches upon how you belittle your husband, that part that challenges uh, you husbands to sacrificially lay down your lives and stop being so selfish and start serving your wives before you serve yourself. How about to children, that part that challenges us to obey our parents in the Lord? We, we know, we know what Jesus has to say about these things, but the question we honestly need to face up to is, will we submit to his authority? You see, I think we can be a lot more like the scribes and the elders than we think. <coughs> we have lots of clever ways of getting out from, what under, uh, out from under what God has, has said to us. And, you know, we, we come back to his word with these questions. Did God really say that? I don't think that's really what he meant. You really think that's what God means here? 
My friends, if you're thinking that way, please, please be on guard because the serpent isn't here. That's serpentine speech. (laughs) Isn't that exactly how the evil one spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden? Did God really say, questioning divine authority? You know, some people, some of you perhaps even are thinking, see, this is is exactly why I have a hard time with, with Christianity in the church. It's just all about authority. It's what God tells me to do how to live. Christians are trying to control me. Wasn't Jesus just about mercy and love and forgiveness? Dear friends, please, please hear me here. You cannot have any of those things unless Jesus has authority. And you can't take part of Jesus and leave the rest, the parts that make you feel warm and good inside. You embrace the whole Jesus or you don't embrace Jesus at all. And this is the same Jesus who is rich and mercy and love and grace. It's also the Jesus who possesses all authority, who is king and Lord over all and deserves and is worthy of our full-hearted life commitment and submission to him. You know, here's some things I was thinking about this week as I was reflecting upon the implications of the authority of Jesus. There there will always be authority in the world. You know, people have tried to do away with it, and we know how that goes. There will always be authority in the world. Your, your, Your parents, your boss, your commanding officer, government officials, the president of the United States, um, perhaps your peers. Increasingly in our culture, the idea is that you, you are an authority unto yourself. Authority will always belong to someone. We, we, can't, we can't escape that reality. So here's, here's what I was thinking. If there's one person in the world that I want to have all authority in the world... It's not any of you. (laughs) Certainly not me. It's not some political pundit on Capitol Hill. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is always wise, always courageous, always loving, always just, always true. If I'm going to submit myself to one person, I want it to be him. Jesus has authority, and one final thing we need to say here, dear friends, is nothing anyone in this room says or does will change that reality. You can leave here today saying, you know what Pastor Jared said today? I think that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Or you can fall down on your knees and worship, which would be great. But neither response changes the objective reality that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the risen Christ. So the real question for each and every one of us as we close is simply this. Regarding the authority of Jesus, do you question it? Or do you welcome it and rejoice in it with all your heart? Let's pray together.